Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. I'm going to give you my take-home messages first. In terms of video game violence, you've probably already come across the fact that there seems to be in the media anyway, a big public controversy about it. And what I wanted to say was that despite the controversy, in my opinion, there is a large empirical research base that suggests that violent games do impact how children think, feel and behave. The second point I wanted to make is that the well-researched impacts include increased aggression, desensitisation to violence, decreased empathy, reduced pro-social behaviour. Something you probably hadn't thought about is that one other screen-related thing is linked to increased aggression. Kids who spend a lot of time in front of screens and kids with screen disorders also tend to be more aggressive. I'm going to talk about why that might be. Both violent content-related and screen overuse-related aggression, I think, comes back to a large extent to what's happening in the brain, and I'm going to explain those effects. And then I will finish up by talking about my last point, which is there are things that you can do um, for families where the problems are subclinical, and there are things you can do for families where the effects are clinical, and we'll talk through those. Now, here are some figures. Those figures in bold are the amount of recreational hours spent on a screen that's not schoolwork and is not at school and is not homework, it's just pure recreation. When Common Sense Media did their first poll back in 2000, and, and well, they did earlier polls, but when they had a 2015 poll showing six hours and 40 minutes a day, we thought that the number had maxed out because we didn't think in a life when you spend eight hours sleeping and some hours um, eating and doing other things and um, five hours with teachers and at school and traveling to and from school, that there were many more discretionary hours in a child's life. But then in 2019, the number went up to 7 hours and 20 minutes of recreational screen use a day on average, and we thought that had maxed out. But then COVID came along, and in the latest figure that came out in 2021, we found a figure that I think is absolutely staggering, and surely that has to be the upper end, right? Eight hours and 39 minutes a day of recreational screen use. Now, why is that important? Well... I think it's important because the brain wires up every second of every day in response to what we experience. We learn from what we see and hear. And if most of your discretionary waking hours are spent in front of a screen, then those are the things that your brain is wiring up to, right? That's why it's important. Now, if you read the popular press, you would have heard, hey, the jury's out, right? The, the scientific evidence is a bit iffy. We really don't think that violent media has any impact on the way children think, feel, and behave. I hear it all of the time because there are a number of experts in the field who say this very, very loudly. For them to be right, you have to assume that every well-established theory of psychology around how we learn things and how we acquire behavior is incorrect because advertising changes consumer behavior, educational media teaches people, 
people learn skills on simulators. Documentaries change the way people think and feel about things. But all of a sudden, violent media is some bizarre zone of exception where all of a sudden the brain turns off and it doesn't have any impact on it. That's ridiculous, right? But that's what we're expected to believe. The truth is, the brain wires up every minute of every day. And the other thing that's important for our discussion today is that the brain, as you already know, is the ultimate use it or lose it organ. What the brain thrives on is cognitive effort. And with cognitive effort, we can kind of stave off things like decline as we get older and a whole bunch of things, and the brain grows when we're developing and so on. But if we're not using that brain, right, you actually see atrophy and decline. And unfortunately, disordered recreational screen use is linked to atrophy in the parts of the brain that are most linked to those higher functions. So when you start to lose that gray matter, it's in the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobes where you do things like manage your emotions and control your impulses and think through the consequences of what you're doing and regulate your emotions and plan for the future and attend and focus and so on. So eight hours and 39 minutes a day in front of a screen actually is quite a big deal. And what I'd have to say is, I don't think there's any professional in the world who would say that eight hours and 39 minutes a day is a healthy or moderate level of use. And that's the average, right? It doesn't capture the people at the far end. Okay, let's talk about violent media and aggression. I just want to quickly show you a, a brief film clip. I have to warn you, there is some violent material in this. As many of you know, many of you follow the court, the Supreme Court's term ended this week with a raft of new rulings. Uh, one ruling in particular caught my eye. The court struck down a law passed by the California legislature in 2005 and signed into law by then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger that made it a crime to sell or rent video games depicting violence to anyone under 18. Oh, wow. That's got to be a huge disappointment for Schwarzenegger, a man who fought so hard for so long to protect kids from images of gratuitous violence. It... <laughs> Sorry. The state has no place keeping kids from buying violent video games. Big deal. You know what? I, I agree with that. I used to play uh, video games, Space Invaders, Doom. How bad could uh, the games really be? And then, oh my God! Oh! 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 Oh my God! I think I'm gonna be sick! Oh! Oh! That! Get, oh! Get some ice! Can the states place any restrictions on content sold to minors? Justice Scalia, in his opinion, uh, said that government might be able to restri restrict sexual materials, but not violent and other materials. Oh. What? Fair warning. This is really fair warning. You may find this next clip, in fact, I'd be truly surprised if you don't. In all seriousness, shocking and offensive. It's like an interactive animated snuff film. So if you are sensitive to violent imagery, now might be a good time to go to another room and have filthy, disgusting, deviant sex. <laughs> In this case, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association, the US Supreme Court determined seven to two that the state of California has no interest in restricting the sale of this game. No interest in restricting the sale of that game to children. But if while being disemboweled, this woman were to suffer perhaps a nip slip, 
regulate away. It's a weird thing, isn't it? You know, we get very upset about sexual content, but we don't seem to be at all worried about the violent content. I've never really understood that. Okay, I was involved in that court case, and I could probably talk to you for hours about it, and I'm very tempted to now, but I don't have time. But what was at issue, partly, is what does the research say? So it's contested, I've told you that, right? There are people with very loud voices who say it's not true. I don't believe it. I don't believe that that is right. This is what I believe the research says to you. The first is that a lot of exposure to violent media leads to short-term and long-term increases in aggression. A short-term increase is a pretty mild, right? Because there's a, the sorts of things that we can measure in a laboratory, how much hot sauce you'd make someone eat, you know, or you know, how much of a horrible loud noise you'd make somebody listen to. Those effects last in line with neural activation, maybe 10, 11, 15 minutes at the most. So they're you know, short-term priming effects, they're mild, they don't last long. But there's also quite a, a growing literature and it involves, you know, just in video, video games alone, more than 25 studies now, showing that the effects are cumulative over time. It's just like you know, smoking, right? One cigarette doesn't kill you, but 50 a day over 20 years does really have a change on your health. And we know that for some kids that you see these increases in aggressive behaviour that steadily accrue across the lifespan. We still don't know which kids are most vulnerable, but we consistently find the effects. They're not huge effects, but they're there. I um, mean, in psychology, of course, no effects are very large. The other thing that we see commonly, and we see it especially in brain imaging research, is desensitisation to violence. We see it in the short term, where even a reasonably short exposure to violence um, stops people having an emotional response to it and they start to become desensitised to it pretty quickly. But we also know that people with a lot of exposure tend not to get upset by the things because they kind of have this long-term desensitisation. The next thing we see is decreased empathy, and the last thing we see is decreased social behaviour. And there's quite a lot of research for it. Now, what I wanted to say to you is that the amount of research isn't trivial. So these figures are just for video games, they're just not for media violence, just for video games alone. In 2010, which is 12 years ago, Craig Anderson's meta-analysis looked at over 381 studies and there were already 130,000 participants in those studies finding those effects. Greitmeyer and Mug looked at another um, 60, um, 92 studies and close to another 40,000 participants. None of these were in the previous meta-analysis, they were all new, and since then there have been a large number of, of studies again. And they all found, uh, on average, in their meta-analyses, those things. So the amount of evidence is not trivial. It's quite a, quite a big amount of evidence. I just want to show you this diagram of a study that Craig Anderson and I and a group of our colleagues did across seven countries. And what we found in every single country was the same pattern, where people who had a lot of exposure to myelin media tended to be more aggressive through um, having an increased amount of aggressive thoughts, cognitions, and, a de and decreased empathy. Now, what's happening in the brain? John Murray is uh, one of my heroes, um, although his taste in clothes is questionable. And that's what he found. I I'm sure that's clear. So let's move on. <clears throat> oh, I might explain that then. Um, he found three key things, I think. <coughs> the first thing is just is re replicated all of the time. When you're playing a violent game, your prefrontal cortex has a lot less activity. The part of your brain with all of the higher functions isn't as turned on, it's more turned off. So that's the first thing. The second thing he found was the part of your brain in the middle, 
where you have all those automatic processes you have no conscious control over, fight or flight, um, emotions, limbic system, there was a lot of activity there. So the things that kind of motivate you into behaviour and, and not thought through behaviour, those things are quite active. And the third thing he found was there was a lot of lateralisation in the right hemisphere where we tend to keep the negative emotions like anger and fear and sadness and <clears throat> less activity in the left hemisphere that tends to be lateralised towards um, the more positive emotions like happiness and joy. And in fact, those studies are pretty fairly, um, pretty well replicated. I'm not going to talk about the study by Doug Gentile um, in, in detail, but what he did find was, in his study, he got people who played 40 hours or more of violent games and people who played 40 hours or more of non-violent games like um, Candy Crush, put them in uh, an fMRI machine, exposed them to violent media, and he thought that the people who had the long-term exposure to Candy Crush would have this big emotional response as they kind of found it emotionally difficult, but the people who had the, a lot of exposure would be desensitised and you would see kind of a, a, a smaller spike in activity. Do you know what he found? He actually found suppression in the people with the long-term exposure. They didn't have a smaller increase, they didn't even flatline. They actually managed the emotional response by suppressing the response of the amygdala to that um, violent material. Like, you know, that's a desensitization. Okay, so fMRI, EEG, MEG studies, they consistently show that while engaging with violent media, there's re reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex, there's a reduction in key executive functions, including um, attentional um, focus in particular, reduction in inhibitory control, lots of activity in those centres um, centers you know, where we have that not thought through behaviour and desensitisation. The next thing, oh, yeah, I probably should say this. I'm not going to say here that violent media is going to make someone a school shooter, right? Because any act of violence has multiple causes. When they find out a lot more about the Uvalde shooter, for example, you're going to find that that person has a lot of risk, factor, risk factors for violence and not many protective factors. And this is the approach we take, right? With media violence, we recognise it occurs in the context of that person's entire life and it's what's happening in the entire context that is important. But of course, if the context of that person's life, you know, includes not much guidance and not much love in the family home and living in a violent neighbourhood and lots of other things, then that violent media is probably going to have a big impact in the way they, they behave and respond to it. In terms of screen disorders and aggression, you know, you would have all seen problem gamblers and you would all be aware the problem gambling is on a continuum and you would see people who are at risk and then you would see what we call the problem gamblers who are about, you know, three to five percent of the adult population. And then you see the addicted gamblers, the disordered gamblers, which is a little bit the one percent typically in most studies. Well, people with screen disorders occur roughly on the same continuum. And so internet gaming disorder, which was the first screen-based disorder that we saw in the, um, as a psychiatric diagnosis, um, we typically see that two to three percent of teenagers have a disorder at that level. And in my last study where we looked at about a thousand school kids, we found a prevalence of 2.8 percent. There's one other study about the same size, it found a prevalence of 3.1 percent. So in Australia, we see about three in a hundred kids who are teenagers with this kind of disordered level of, of screen use. The World Health Organization in 2019 made gaming disorder um, a full disorder um, in its 
International Classification of Disease. When the DSM um, put theirs in in 2013, it's in the section for disorders requiring further, further research. WHO1 is a disorder. The thing I like about what the World Health Organization doing is that they had the clinical level, which is gaming disorder, but they also created a subclinical um, diagnosis of hazardous gaming for that are roughly 10% of teenagers who game at problematic levels that are not quite clinical, but they're certainly enough to be concerning. Now, I, this, is, this is my own model of um, screen addiction, but basically what we typically find and what most um, specialists in the field find is that if a child has problems with their executive functions, they're, they're impulsive, they have poor self-control, um, poor focus and attention, combined with a life where their needs offline aren't being met very well, but, but those needs are met online. So, you know, they don't have very high self-esteem, they're good at many things, they don't have many friends, and um, they don't have much control in their life, but online they feel all of those things, and those are the kids who are most at risk. Unfortunately, we talked about the brain being a use it or lose it organ, and we talked about atrophy. And there are more than 200 studies now, neuroscience studies, of what's happening in the brains of screen-addicted kids compared to other kids. And what we see is, is, is atrophy that's measurable on um, brain scans, and particularly, unfortunately, in these following areas, in these frontal lobes where the higher functions are. That's not good, right? But we also see it in the striatum, which is a part of the brain that's linked to suppressing antisocial impulses. We also see atrophy in the insula, which is very much linked to empathy and, and managing um, relationships well. And, and people with problems with the insula, um, you know, they're often linked with violent behaviour if that's compromised. So that's where we see the problems. We also see um, a thinning of the cerebral cortex impairment on cognitive tasks, not very good information processing and reduced impulse control, and also unfortunately reduced white matter integrity, so there's you know, connectivity problems as well. So what does this mean? It means that if a child has problems with screens, then you get an issue in two areas. The first is because it's recreational, the prefrontal cortex isn't very active because it's recreational, right? It's not working very hard. And the second thing is that if you're one of these people who have also developed these problems over time, where there's atrophy as well, then that adds to the problem. And if the part of the brain where we control the impulses, and particularly antisocial impulses, isn't working very well, then it kind of makes sense that those kids would be more aggressive. And, and that's what we see clinically. So we just published um, about three weeks ago um, a series of six case studies. There was nothing special about them, but we just took six representative studies. In five of those studies, um, the kids were, were quite physically aggressive. And in half of the studies, three of those studies, the parents had needed to take apprehended violence orders against their children out in order to protect themselves. Because with the screen-addicted kids, you can actually see pretty high levels of violence when parents try to take the screens away. Okay, so what can you do in the clinic on Monday morning? I'm going to talk first about what to do at that kind of subclinical level because I, I suspect that most of what you're going to see is parents who, who don't know how to manage the issues, but, you know, it's problematic rather than a clinical issue. And the first thing I'd say is you all know what a healthy food diet looks like. Well, a healthy media diet, in my opinion, is the same. The first thing is moderation in amount, not too much, not too little. So you're aiming for a healthy consumption. The second thing you're looking for is like the food pyramid, right? More of the good stuff, the green leafy vegetables, 
of the media world are things like educational media and pro-social media and media that you know is going to be developmentally helpful. But the fats and the oils and maybe the poisons, the things that the other end of the food pyramid you want less of are the violent and the anti-social media and the fake news and the mind-numbing media and the stuff that doesn't help kids developmentally. More of the good stuff, less of the not good so stuff. Not good stuff. And the last thing is age appropriateness, right? Full cream milk was great if you're two and you're growing your bones, but it's not very great if you're 90 years old and your arteries are 90% occluded, right? So you have to think about the age your child is and what sort of media diet is best at that child's age. So that's the first one, a healthy media diet. The second thing is sleep. Sleep is so crucial. The more I go down this developmental psychology path, the more convinced I, are, I am that this is a crucial thing that we don't pay enough attention to as parents or as clinicians, is the fact that kids need their 9, 10, 11 hours sleep in order to develop well. And most kids, most teenagers are probably sleep deprived, often because of the screen use. I mean, if you're spending eight hours and 40 minutes a day in recreational screen use, where is the time coming from, right? We need to encourage regular exercise and outdoor activity, and we're looking for a balance. You know, if you're going to spend two hours on a screen, then spend two hours outside. The next thing is monitoring. This is a study by Doug Chill, and I really like the study, because what he found was that the more the parents monitored their kids' media, the less screen time they had, the more sleep they had, the better their school performance there was, the lower their body mass index, the less violent media they saw, the more pro-social behaviour they had, and the less aggressive behaviour. Now look, for my money, that's a great payoff for the parents monitoring and being involved with what their kids are doing. And my advice is it needs to be active monitoring, like not just knowing, but actually being a part of it as well. I think that's really crucial. The next thing I advise is to control the Wi-Fi. The modern kid typically thinks that it's their right for the Wi-Fi to be on 24 hours a day in the home. But we find that where there's a problem, if parents can take, take control of the Wi-Fi and say to the kids, you know what? These are the rules around the Wi-Fi and you're going to earn your right to use the Wi-Fi. And, you know, if you're not doing your homework, if you're not kind of agreeing to the things that we've decided as a family we're going to do, then I'm going to turn the Wi-Fi off. And you can do that remotely with things like um, Koala Safe and Family Zone and so on, where parents can actually control the Wi-Fi from their phones. The next thing I'd suggest is go to healthychildren.org, where the families can sit down together and make a family media plan. And work out together what they think a healthy use is and make rules and commit to the um, family actually abiding by those rules. Very helpful. Second last, the context is crucial, right? We mentioned this before. Nothing happens in a vacuum. That warm, loving, kind family environment where good conflict resolution is modelled is really crucial so that it kind of offsets a lot of the effects that media might have in the child's life. And the last thing I say to parents is model good behaviour. The kids are watching. I mean, they're really watching. They're watching carefully. There's lots of studies on it now. They watch their parents carefully, and they know that mum's all the way on the phone, and dad's always answering emails, and they're sitting at the dinner table, but everybody's on their device, and nobody's actually talking to each other like they see what you're doing. You know, if you want your kids to be healthy users, then you need to be too. What do we do clinically? At the extreme level, particularly with... with you know, disordered screen use, the severe cases are severe. I mean, they're really severe, you know. I, I could probably rattle off 10 cases where kids have died at the screen. 
right? Kids that don't go to school for years at a time. You know, kids whose lives are racked by anxiety. You know, I, I, I saw someone who hadn't been to school for seven years, who'd lived in their room for seven years. They hadn't been outside their room for seven years. Their parents left their meals at the door. And when I saw that person, they were morbidly obese. They had no friends. They had a year seven education and they were too terrified to leave their room or go to the front door. They were racked with depression and anxiety and they had comorbid addictions. They were addicted to online gambling and so on, right? At the extreme level, it's really serious and you really need to seek the correct clinical help. Okay. My advice is psychologists tend to, on the APS website, tick every single box saying I have expertise in this area. What you want to do is you want to find someone with genuine expertise because kids at the experiment actually need someone who knows what they're doing, especially in this area. Well, let me reiterate. You would have heard there's a big public controversy. In my opinion, the research, the scientific literature has established very well that violent video games can impact how children think, feel and behave. In fact, they have to, otherwise what we know about psychology doesn't work, okay? The well-researched impacts are the ones we talked about, increased aggression, desensitization to violence, reduced empathy, reduces in pro-social behavior and increase in fear. We see kids who have a lot of time on screens and kids with screen disorders tend to be a lot more aggressive and they can be more violent. And all of these processes you can see are probably linked to what's happening in the brain, particularly stuff to do with the prefrontal cortex, a lack of activity and problems in that area. And lastly, we talked about those strategies, what you can do. There are subclinical strategies for helping parents set up ways of managing to deal with it. But when you get to that clinical end where the problems are serious, then you really need to get that person to somebody who really knows what they're doing. Um, perhaps even you know, as an inpatient at a psychiatric facility. But it's something that needs to be taken seriously, right? You know, we tend not to take these screen issues seriously. But I've seen some such serious cases that I know differently. I know we do need to take it seriously. You guys are at the front line. I mean, as a psychologist, we rely on GPs, right? We rely so much on what you do. And essentially, you know, what you do in this field with families, with screens, with video games is just so absolutely crucial because you're the front line of contact. You know, you play this absolutely crucial role. And hopefully, thank you for listening to me and thank you for maybe taking some of this on board in your own practice. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.